Real Word Podcast, Dispatch 6. All right, so we got a bit of a superhero theme going today. First first one up is Spider-Man No Way Home. Now, yeah, I know I'm a bit late to this party, but I managed to dodge all of the spoilers around it. Um, I'm going to be kind of brief with the synopsis here, so if you've seen Far From Home, you'll know how that ends. Uh, You know, Mysterio turns out to be a bad guy, and he stages a massive frame-up job in his little attack on London he pins on, you know, Peter. And on top of that, reveals to the entire world that Spider-Man is Peter Parker in real life. And on top of that, he stages his own death to look like a murder. Now, the first five minutes or so are this kind of like frantic comical sequence where he and MJ are trying to, you know, get to a safe spot and avoid the press and the public because, you know, Everyone thinks Spider-Man's a murderer now. Uh, and I did I did like this part. I'm holding out hope that we're either going to get a reboot of the old Netflix Daredevil show or we're going to get some actually decent movies because um, we have a Mr. Murdoch come by and he's acting as legal counsel for Peter. <laughs> and it's this cool scene where, like, from behind him, there's this brick that gets thrown through the window, and he just, like, reaches off to catch it. So, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, the next sequence is a little showcase of how his life is being, you know, upended by this, because even though the charges of, like, murder and stuff don't stick, everyone, a lot of people still hate him. And, you know, they're in high schools, old, they're seniors, they're trying to get into college, and they're all aiming for MIT, and it's not just him getting shut out of it. Um, MJ and Ned are basically getting punished just for being associated with him at this point. So, yeah, they get um, they get rejected because of that as well. And then we get to the main plot line here where Peter basically tries to, you know, fix this. And he goes to see Doctor Strange and asks him if he can help and the one thing he suggests is this spell that will basically m- make everyone in the world forget that, well, everyone aside from Peter, I would hope, <laughs> that, uh, you know, Spider-Man's real name is Peter Parker. It'll make the whole world forget that. But something goes wrong with the spell because Peter's really um, nervous about the after effects, so he keeps asking to like exclude certain people from it, which just makes the spell unstable, I guess. And whatever it is ends up having this weird consequence where you get the, well, we're not quite at Multiverse of Madness yet, but we'll be talking about that a bit later. But it does bring in, you know, the Spider-Men from other universes uh, along with their associated villains. We get, I forget the name for Sandman's actor, but we get him, uh, we get Lizard, we have Willem Dafoe back as Green Goblin. We have Jamie Foxx as Electro. We've got... Um, <laughs> we have Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. And Strange tells him that this has the potential to do something... It's kind of nebulous what would happen, but we can assume it would not be something good if, you know, you have a bunch of villains coming in from other universes. Uh, <laughs> I kind of think it's funny the way they're going with like the Daily Bugle is that it's basically the in-universe version of InfoWars. It's a 
nice kind of makes the whole thing feel a little bit grounded. Um, I will say, even by the standards of Marvel movies, the visual effects, especially with this little fight that he and Strange have in the mirror dimension, it's all amazing. Um, my only real complaint so far of the movie is that the whole plot of this movie can basically be summed up as Peter Parker is being an idiot. He just makes everything worse by second-guessing Strange, first with the, uh, you know, memory wipe spell to begin with, and then later when he has this thing that would send them back to their respective universes. And I get it. In the first case, it's more like, well, he's under a lot of stress, and he just takes the easiest, what he sees as the easiest route. It's kind of funny. He's like, after the spell is cast, Strange is like, so you didn't even think to call MIT and appeal on your friend's behalf before you came here and asked me to basically brainwash the entire world. And he's like, oh, when you put it that way. <laughs> and it just gets that comedy shot where he's like outside the building and the door is getting slammed in his face. And the second one is because, well, you know, he learns that these guys are in their own universes are fated to die fighting their respective Spider-Men. And he wants to try and, like, you know, get them off this path so that they, um, you know, don't die. So I, I can't fault him for wanting to help people, but, like, it, it it just cracks me up that when you think about the plot here, it's basically Peter's being an idiot. And that's really my only complaint about the movie. It's got some really good... It's got some really good humor, and you've got the added benefit of some good character drama because you've got, you know, multiple Spideys coming in. You've also got Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire coming back. Uh, yeah, they're all really bringing their own, like, characterization. Toby's kind of... They kind of make a couple jokes at Toby's expense because he's, like, the old man of the group. Overall, I'd say the main issue with the movie, again, is that the plot felt a little bit contrived, but... This one, it was really just that it was so blatant about it. Still, it's a great follow-up for Far From Home, and it helped lead into Multiverse of Madness, which will be the last one on the list today. So, I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. Alright, next up, we have Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, starring Simu Liu. We have the title character as he's trying to confront his father, uh, his father is uh, Shu Wenwu. He's the leader of the Ten Rings, which I think I don't think they've been referenced since Iron Man three or something like that. But we open to this intro where his uh, mother, through voiceover, gives us the backstory. Um, and Wenwu is basically a composite of you know the Mandarin and Fu Manchu. Um, I think they did it mostly just to avoid the whole, like, you know, Yellow Peril baggage that came with it. For those that don't know, Yellow Peril was basically the, um, idea at the time Fu Manchu was written, where it was just sort of this anxiety about the amount of Chinese immigrants coming in, or probably East Asian in general, but I, I just, but since the majority were Chinese, I think it was mostly about them. Um... So yeah, this was sort of in a way to kind of like distance the characters from it. So they just took Mandarin and Fu Manchu to 
uh, just sort of melded them together and gave them a bit more characterization. So that's basically the guy who's leading the Ten Rings now. We cut to him in present day, sometime after Endgame, as this guy named Sean. He's just working with his friend Katie as a valet at a hotel somewhere in San Francisco. And the thing I kind of loved about this is that it's kind of an origin story movie, but he's like, he knows about his past, he knows his connection, and he's actively running from it. So he actually does have some idea of what's going on. He does have some like competence off the bat without it feeling just forced. It saves on the exposition a little bit, to be honest. And like, it's, like I said, his friend Katie is played by uh, uh, Aquafina, is what she goes by. I don't know her real name. But it's really hilarious, and it feels like genuine friendship, the dynamic they have with each other. It's also just the fact that they clearly are comfortable enough with each other that they're not averse to making sarcastic quips at each other's expense. I can, you know, I can commend all the Marvel movies for this, but especially here, the characters just really feel real. And it's also kind of funny because Katie's just like a regular person who just gets dragged along for the ride. So... It's kind of funny seeing her react and thinking, yeah, that's probably how I'd react in this situation. Uh, yeah, again, visuals here, like, even by MCU, this is the up, this is upper tier for me. And I do especially like the... I was always a bit of a mythology nut, so I like the incorporation of Chinese mythological beings like, you know, Eastern dragons, uh, the Chilean, which is sort of like this weird horse antler thing horse antler uh weird mix of like a horse and elk with like these really colorful scales you have the um foo lions which are if you ever see like a chinese temple or something there those like lion statues out front and this weird little creature called the hunden we uh as far as the action it's there's a lot more I feel like there's a lot more like craft and attention to detail put into shooting it and staging it, choreo- choreographing everything. Um, given the hero and the villain in this case, it makes a lot of sense. There's a definite influence from a lot of like old, older martial art movies. And again, there's a lot of humor in the movie itself, especially because there's like callbacks to Iron Man 3. We actually get um, Ben Kingsley rep- reprising his role as that like... Trevor Slatterly, or whatever his name was, <laughs> he's the uh, he's the actor that. Spoiler alert! At the end of Iron Man three, we find out oh he's not actually the Mandarin, and these aren't actually the Ten Rings. They're just pretending to be to like you know be the boogeyman for some bigger plot. The soundtrack is amazing. It's got the usual feel of like you know it's got that typical like superhero action movie score where it's like this sort of frantic orchestral music. But it's also got some influence from like both hip-hop and traditional Chinese music. It's a nice little energetic side story from the MCU, and it's nice to see uh, more roles from Tony Leung and Michelle Yeoh, uh, Tony, the former of whom is like one of the biggest stars from Hong Kong. He's done a lot of work with the uh, director Wong Kar Wai, and Michelle Yeoh 
most famous from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but those of you who have listened to the first Dispatch will recognize that she was also in another really great movie this year is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which, yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure that's still in theaters, so go see that too. Um, (laughs) But yeah, this is going to be a 10 out of 10 for me on this one. All right, next we have up Zack Snyder's Justice League. So, yeah, we're f- going to be checking out the Snyder Cut on this one. So, before we begin, no, I didn't watch the original cut that came out in theaters back in 2017 or whatever. I'm not going to be comparing it to that version. I'm judging it solely on its own merits. And if I ever talk about the original, I'm going to be ignoring the behind-the-scenes controversy. So, because that... It generally doesn't have much to do with the final film, in my opinion. So, after the end of BVS, Batman goes around to do a bit of recruiting to counter the incoming threat of Steppenwolf, who, as I understand it, he's the uncle and underling of the villain Darkseid. Um, again, like, this is... Some of these guys I only know from the Injustice games, so... Yeah, I I can't really give much of background to anyone if you're not already a DC fan. So, there's that. Now, I will say that this is definitely a well-crafted movie in the sense that aside from, you know, the well-choreographed action, good CGI and the like, Snyder definitely tried to give this movie a touch of artistry. The way a lot of the scenes are set up and shot, it feels a lot artsier than, you know the stereotypical superhero movie. I can respect that, especially given that people still look down on them from an artistic point of view. Uh, Superhero movies, I mean. Uh, Yeah, definitely check out Elizabeth Olsen's quote on that, because, yeah, it's like maybe these things aren't high drama, maybe they're not high art, but if you try and dismiss them, you're kind of disrespecting a lot of the hard work that goes into making them, especially when you've got crews of, like, hundreds that are trying to coordinate everything. But yeah, there's like a definite attempt to have those kind of like um, lockdown shots, very, you know, wide shots that don't necessarily have anything to do with action or characters, trying to like give a mood for the for the movie, whatever scene it's going through. Um, there's a few scenes where I think it's like with Cyborg's origin story is that when he taps into, like, the internet, it almost seems like he's standing in this sort of, like, desolate cityscape, and he's just had these, all these lights come on, and it's just things he touches to, is to, you know, access some information. And now we come to the bad news, and I feel like this is where I'm probably going to lose a few followers over this. I really, really, really do not like the way a lot of DC movies go because apparently Zack Snyder read a lot of Frank Miller and completely misunderstood what he was going for as if a friend of mine did say Snyder and his writers read Watchmen especially and missed the complete fucking point of it and that's honestly the main issue here and with Man of Steel and BVS yes because apparently 
when these directors and studio producers hear that people appreciate realism in superhero movies, it means make your characters miserable assholes for no reason and just give everything this like coldish blue tint. This superhero, this Superman was never given any reason to be a hero. Batman apparently uses guns now. And everyone with the caveated exception of the Flash is just a miserable asshole. Like, Wonder Woman and Aquaman are at least isolated from what could be considered their people. So they have a reason to be kind of downbeat. Not to mention they're the only two that have a decent performance. I can understand why Cyborg is the way he is in the movie, but it was still kind of jarring seeing him so mopey. Because I've seen him in Injustice comics and games, but that was after a pretty serious trauma. And... And the only other place other than that I've seen him is the old Teen Titans cartoon, and he was like... I mean, he was—he had more humor than basically anyone else in the show, aside from, like, Beast Boy. Yeah, I don't know. It's just... Everything was just so, like, miserable for basically no reason. And, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but, like, Ben Affleck is Batman. Not great. Just not great. I don't hate... Be- I don't hate Ben Affleck, but this wasn't, these movies weren't his best performances. And on top of that, I don't know what Snyder was trying to fix with this. I've read somewhere that one of the things that kind of led to the mixed reception was that when Whedon took over in post-production, he tried to make the movie a little more humorous, which, given the way DC movies were up to this point, I think was probably a bad idea. I'd normally be all for that, but it was so tonally inconsistent, I guess. I'll have to make a note of it once I see it, but... Yeah, I don't know what problem Snyder was trying to fix with this, but I doubt that it needed to make the movie four hours to fix it. It's just so bloated, and it's so it drags so much. It's well done on a technical level, aside... Like I, I mean, yeah, there's also the mentions I made of a few artistic sequences, but I don't know. I've watched movies that were as long or in some cases longer than this one, but this one just felt like an endurance test. So I don't know. Maybe I'll rewatch it at some point if I have the time. Maybe I'll decide I like it more, but this one's going to get a 5 out of 10 for now. So... Yeah, moving on. All right, shortest entry here is going to be Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Now, like the first Venom movie, this one was kind of middle tier as far as story, pacing, and characterization goes. I will say I did love Woody Harrelson playing the serial killer Cletus Cassidy, who is the host of the Carnage symbiote. And he's, like, perfect for this role of, like, the arrogant, suave villain. He almost... He's definitely that sort of, like, serial killer that you see in fiction who's, like, really, really charming, but he's also just kind of a delightful scumbag, as I like to put it. He doesn't make any excuses for what he does, but he just seems like a really charming guy with anger issues if you don't know anything about him. Uh, Secondly, Venom himself is still the same like, aggressive man-child he was before, and seeing him and Eddie Bicker is still so much fun. Tom Hardy is great for this role. 
The first hour, though, it just drags so much. And the only really major entertaining sequence other than the bickering is the fight with Carnage itself. Yeah, not terrible, but it's really, really forgettable. And, I mean, considering most of these other superhero movies are like two hours long at minimum, this one just, it was it was over before I really could follow it. It was only like an hour and 40 minutes. So, yeah, not terrible, but pretty forgettable. And I'm just going to give this a 6 out of 10. And finally, we have The Multiverse of Madness, the newest Doctor Strange movie. Yeah, and the best way I can synopsize this, go on Twitter, look up CJ DeChamp. His status for his first viewing of this was just, Wanda is a fucking menace. <laughs> yeah, that's the best way of summing up. In all seriousness, this was, like, really fucking trippy. I don't... I get some of the criticism of it, but I don't see why people are piling on with this one in particular. The plot is somewhat threadbare, although I have a feeling I'd be less confused if I actually watched WandaVision, although that being said, I feel like if you just watch the movies up to this point, you can still have a serviceable understanding. I just feel like I was missing something because uh, I hadn't watched that yet. Yeah, it is, it's simple enough that I think it works as a self-contained story, or at least as self-contained as a Marvel movie gets when it's a sequel. As long as you've seen No Way Home, you should be able to follow it. The effects are amazingly trippy, and having Sam Raimi as director, I, at least partially, I think it helped to incorporate some more like scary, horrific imagery into this project. We get, we get zombie Doctor Strange. We get these weird moments where uh, Wanda's like possessing her alternate self. It's. It's scary in a way that I haven't seen in, like, any of the other MCU movies. Now, that being said, I don't know how much of that was down to having Raimi as the director. But apparently this was supposed to be longer. Now, this one is on the shorter side of these superhero movies in recent years. It's only about two hours and five minutes. And according to Raimi, like, the original cut was something like two hours and 40 minutes. So... I don't know, maybe after the theatrical run ends, we'll get calls for, I don't know, release the Raimi cut or something. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, hopefully it ends up actually fixing things in, like, the Snyder cut. Oh, wait, sorry, I'm going to get off that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd honestly say, like, the biggest issue here is, like, it's completely unavoidable. It's so late in the MCU, It's we're in Phase 4, and it is a sequel. So it's not like you can just jump straight into it. On its own merit, though, it's probably one of my favorites because of the characters, the performances, the visuals. There's the whole multiverse aspect, so some of the weirdness in it is more or less, like, some of the weird things just doesn't bother me. As long as a movie like this doesn't just resort to doing complete nonsense, I'm willing to accept a lot at face value. So have a mindset like that. And this is going to be a great movie to watch for you. And I'm going to be giving this one a 10 out of 10. That's all for today. Signing off, and I'll see you next time. Bye.